On October 16, 2000, a grieving daughter, Marilyn Blaylock, called the coroner's office. Her mother, Mary Lou Henderson Morris, had been murdered four days before. Marilyn was hoping to pick up some of her mother's belongings, including some treasured jewelry. The receptionist at the coroner's office stunned Marilyn with her response. The coroner still had the body and her personal belongings, and she could pick up the personal belongings after the funeral. But Marilyn had seen her mother. They'd already had the funeral. In a cruel twist of fate, another woman named Mary Morris had been murdered in the Houston area just four days after Marilyn's mother, who was also named Mary Morris. And in the case of not one, but two Mary Morrises being murdered within days of each other in a pretty close proximity, one question remains. Who killed the Marys? Welcome to Margs and Mayhem, where I tell you a true crime story and we drink. The following content may be disturbing to some. Discretion is advised. If you choose to enjoy one of our themed margaritas, make sure you are of legal drinking age and have fun, but drink responsibly. Today's drink features a fruit I'd never heard of, but apparently have probably eaten. And chances are, if you've ever eaten canned mandarin oranges, they're actually a satsuma. Satsuma are traditionally grown in the Satsuma region in Japan, which is where they get their name. They're a small sweet citrus and they're easy to peel, always seedless, and taste pretty good in a lot of places, including a drink. And they grow pretty well in the bayous, such as the bayous in Bayou City, or the scene for today's story, Houston. For this margarita, it's very simple. Two parts tequila, one part satsuma syrup, and one part lime juice. You mix it all in a nice filled shaker, shake it up, do a little taste test to see if you want more satsuma syrup. You probably don't. <laughs> Fuji strain it over fresh ice, drink, and enjoy. Mary Lou Henderson Morris, who for the rest of this episode I will refer to as Mary Lou, was a 48-year-old woman living in a suburb of Houston. She had an adult daughter and, by all accounts, a very loving relationship with her second husband, whose name was Jay. They lived in the Spring Valley neighborhood of Baytown, Texas, which is that Houston suburb, and she worked as a loan officer at a Chase Bank branch in Houston. She had worked there for 15 years and had never missed a day of work. That's pretty impressive. Her husband, Jay, described her as a good person who'd never done anything bad to anyone. She kept her nose clean, no drinking or gambling and no known enemies that anyone could think of. In an ABC interview that would happen later, Marilyn would say, quote, she was one of the nicest people you'd ever want to know. She was nice to anyone, end quote. She had a passion for gardening and for horseback riding. She was even known to take some of the manure from the horse stable and to put it on her prized rose bushes. Mary Lou had large, curly, brown-black hair. On October 12, 2000, the sun rose around 7.20 a.m. in Baytown, Texas. It was a clear, sunny day with the I guess seasonably warm temperatures that you would expect in South Texas. It was a typical morning for Mary Lou and Jay who woke up together and Mary Lou had to leave earlier for work. So Jay walked her out, made sure she got safely into her Chevy Lumina and then she drove off to go to, to, go to work. 
He watched her as she drove down the road and actually turned the opposite direction of the way she would normally turn to get to that Chase Bank. But Jay wasn't alarmed. The way that she turned was the way to the local gas station that she preferred. So Jay just assumed that she was going to get some gas. At some point during the day, there are two differing stories about a call between Jay and Mary Lou's supervisor at work. In one of the stories, Jay calls Mary Lou's supervisor to check in because Jay was used to checking in with Mary Lou throughout the day and he hadn't heard from her. And Mary Lou's supervisor said that she wasn't at work. Or in another story, because remember, she'd never missed a day of work in 15 years, Mary Lou's supervisor called Jay and asked where Mary Lou was, but in that story, she doesn't identify herself as Mary Lou's supervisor. And so Jay just says she's at work. And then the supervisor just says, okay, thanks. And hangs up, doesn't say, no, she's not. I don't know. It's sort of a strange story. Like I said, there's two different ones. And I guess it's, it's possible that both actually happened considering it seems like they had some miscommunication. Uh, it turns out that later Jay would see that Mary Lou had actually left her cell phone at home plugged in on the charger. And so that and for other reasons are why she had not communicated with Jay throughout the day. At some point in the afternoon after Jay becomes increasingly and increasingly worried, he actually reaches out to Marilyn, who was an adult at this time, and Marilyn hadn't heard from Mary Lou either. And so together they filed a missing persons report with the police department. Earlier in the day, around 10 a.m., a local citizen had actually contacted the fire department because they had seen smoke going up in the area. But it's the time of year where people in that area are often burning brush or limbs or whatever. And so the fire department didn't actually respond to that call. Later that afternoon at around 5 p.m., a passerby runs into a fully engulfed Chevy Lumina. The car was in a remote area down two side roads and actually through a gate that someone would have had to get out of the car to go and open. The passerby was able to see that there was a body inside the car. Firefighters and police officers rushed to the scene, but by this point, the fire had been raging for something like seven hours at least. And so everything inside was, was burned beyond recognition. It would take forensic science to figure out that the body that was inside was Mary Lou Henderson Morris. She was reported to either have been in the back seat or in the passenger seat, and her body was burned to the point where they could not tell a manner of death or a cause of death, but based on the body positioning and the fact that the car was totally on fire, it was pretty clear that she had been murdered. Within a few hours, Detectives delivered the terrible news that they believed that the body inside the car belonged to Mary Lou Henderson Morris. She had jewelry still left on her body, except for one piece of jewelry, which was her wedding ring. And it's possible her purse was gone, but it's also possible that in the seven hours that the car was on fire, the purse actually just burned to dust. To me, that seems more likely, but who knows? The police did not believe that robbery was the motive for the crime, due in part to the just absolutely obscene amounts of violence that clearly went into it. They also believed that some sort of accelerant had been used in both the car and around the car, probably gasoline, which makes sense considering the car burned for seven hours or more. A few days after the discovery of Mary Lou's body, 
an alleged phone call came into the Houston Chronicle in which the caller mysteriously said they got the wrong Mary. This is an, it's an element of this case that among others has some holes to it. And there was another podcast recently called The Prosecutors that actually contacted the Houston Chronicle and no one really could recall that that had happened. To me, it kind of seems a little bit fishy, especially because they didn't report on that at all in any, any way. But again, who knows? 39-year-old Mary Teresa McGinnis Morris, who from now on we'll call Mary Teresa, had recently relocated to Sugarland, Texas, which is another suburb of Houston, from West Virginia. They had moved in 1998. She was married to Mike Morris, and they had a 16-year-old daughter. She also had big, curly, brown-black hair. Her sister, Stephanie Lore, would say, quote, Mary was like an angel. She was very joyful, always happy, making people laugh. Not enough words to describe her. I mean, she was just really loved by everyone, end quote. Mary worked for Union Carbide, which was a large manufacturing company, but she actually was their on-site nurse practitioner, which means that she saw the people that worked at Union Carbide in a nurse practitioner capacity. She was like their own private nurse practitioner. She was a bit of a workaholic, working upwards of 14 hour days and a lot of weekends and nights, but she really liked her work and she excelled at it. She saw patients at several different Union Carbide sites and she got along with almost all of her coworkers. There were some strains in Mike and Mary Teresa's marriage. In the two years since they had moved to Sugarland, Mike had not found a job and this financial strain definitely took a toll on their marriage. And there was a life insurance policy that had been taken out in Mary Teresa's name to what amounts to about $1.1 million in today's money. Could that be a motive? I don't know, stay tuned. On top of that potential money motive, Mike had actually accused Mary Teresa of having an affair with another friend of theirs. But evidently he says he'd actually confronted both of them and they denied it and he, I guess, believed them. Who knows? There was also one coworker that Mary Teresa had some issues with. His name was Duane. And according to at least some of Mary Teresa's friends, they had problems from the very beginning. There's another convoluted story about how Mary Teresa had actually reported Dwayne for something either unethical or against the rules that he had done and he had gotten fired. Uh, one day when Mary Teresa came into her office, all of her pictures had been turned around in her office and there was a, a note scribbled on her desk that said death to her. Ugh. For what it's worth, over the last 22 years, Dwayne has been super active on message boards and in interviews and whatever else vehemently denying that they had any disagreements or that he had anything to do with what comes next. Oh, and he also says that he didn't get fired. His contract ended, so he voluntarily left the job. And he and Mary Teresa were good enough friends that they would even go on work trips together. Who knows? I feel like I'm saying who knows a lot in this episode. It's, who knows? In the weeks leading up to Mary Teresa's death, Evidently, she became increasingly unnerved, worried, and paranoid. Yeah, if you have a note written death to you on your desk, you'd probably be all of those things too. According to Mike, 
Mary Teresa said that she was afraid of Dwayne and asked Mike to let her borrow Mike's gun, which he installed underneath the seat in Mary Teresa's car. Mary drove a Dodge Intrepid. More on that later. A few weeks later, on October 15th, 2000, Mary Teresa met her friend Lori Gremmel at one of her offices in order to give Lori some allergy shots. This was a Saturday. She seemed fine, according to Lori, and they chatted about just mundane things and their evening plans, which for Mary Teresa included running some errands. Later that afternoon, Lori said that Mary Teresa called her saying that she was in the local Eckerd's, which is sort of like a Walgreens or a CVS, and that there was another guy in there who was giving her the creeps. She mentioned on the phone, according to Lori, that this guy she actually knew. She had been introduced to this person by Dwayne. Interesting. Mary Teresa told Lori that she was gonna just run back to her office real quick, turn off her computer, and then head home for the evening. Police aren't exactly sure what happened next, but 12 minutes after Mary Teresa got off the phone with Lori, she made a panicked call to 911. The contents of that 911 call have never been released to the public, but police say that it contains Mary's murder. A detective from the Harris County Sheriff's Department said this, quote, we're not releasing the content of the tape. It covers the attack that happened to Mary and anybody that's ever heard that tape has just had their blood chilled listening to it. It's a very chilling, disturbing call, end quote. One thing we do know is that on the call, she reportedly referred to her assailant as they. The next morning, a record driver found her body in that Dodge Intrepid, a company car. The medical examiner's report revealed that Mary Teresa McGinnis Morris had been gagged, viciously beaten, and shot in the head. She was left dead in the car. The gun, which had been underneath her seat, was the murder weapon and had been left in the passenger seat. So at first glance, one might have thought that this was a suicide, but there was blood on the passenger side door, which had been left wide open and that, combined with the beating that she took, made it clear that she had also been murdered. Her wedding ring had also been stripped from her left hand. Later, Mike would say that he found that wedding ring and gave it to his daughter and didn't report that to the police. Hmm. Mike claimed to have been at the movies with his daughter during the murder. Police couldn't really verify that alibi and also he refused to speak to the police without a lawyer present. Listen, I don't think I'm gonna fault him for that one. This was 2000, so people were starting to become aware, were already aware of the shenanigans that tended to happen in police departments. And, you know, they always suspect the spouse first. And I grew up knowing I should always ask for a lawyer, no matter if I'm innocent or guilty. So I really can't fault him for that. He refused to take a lie detector test and later stated that it was because he was on some medications and he wasn't sure how the lie detector test would be affected by the medications. Again, since lie detectors are pretty much confirmed bunk science, I don't blame him there either. Lastly, he would not let police interview his 16 year old daughter. Sure, he had good logical reasons for that too, but all of these at least made the police initially suspect that he'd had something to do with his wife's murder. 
Okay, and then also there's this issue with a four minute phone call. Mm, get ready for this. Detectives pulled the phone records of Mike Morris and Mary Teresa, right? Naturally. And they saw on this phone record that two hours after that 911 call that Mary Teresa had made, there was a four minute phone call on both of their phone records, a, showing a connected speaking to phone call for four minutes. Mike would say that the phone rang for four minutes straight. He let it ring for four minutes straight and it never connected. That seems a little bit strange to me. Also, because that's not what the phone record showed. The sh phone records show a connected one. And at the outset, phones only ring for 30 seconds before going to voicemail, not four minutes. So not only does it seem highly improbable or impossible that the phone rang and rang for that long, the actual phone company says that the phone was answered. So if Mary Teresa was already dead, the question is, who is Mike Morris talking to for four minutes? Mike denies any involvement in the murder of his wife, as does coworker Dwayne. Dwayne has claimed that he wants Mary Teresa's murderer to face justice. This is after the case is essentially cold. So to me, it seems a little bit unlikely that he would continue to purposefully put himself out into the public sphere, knowing that if he just was quiet, he could get away with it. But again, who knows? Members of both families believe that these murders were connected. Mary Lou's husband, Jay, would say, quote, the astronomical odds that two Mary Morrises were killed three days apart, very similar in looks to me is, that's what it is, astronomical, that they're not connected. I can't help but think they have to be related. I can't imagine that two women with the same name would be murdered within three days of each other, both found in their cars, and not have that be related. End quote. If y'all remember the episode way back, maybe a year ago, where we talked about the Bennington Triangle, you'll probably remember that I'm a bit of a skeptic when it comes to things like coincidences, connections, that kind of a thing. People like to create patterns even when they don't exist. It's natural. It's what our brain does naturally on its own. If you remember, it even has a term, apophenia. Also, let's not forget that cognitive dissonance affects every person. What evidence might you be ignoring if you just assume that these murders are connected? Okay, let's start with the similarities. Let's just get those out of the way. And there are similarities even beyond the women having the same first and last names. Both women lived in the Houston metro area. Both Mary Teresa and Mary Lou had similar hairstyles. And despite the fact that they were about 10 years apart in age, they do look pretty similar, especially if you're looking from a distance probably or at a photograph where you're comparing the two. They have a similar shaped face, they're both white women, and they have similarly colored hair that they styled in a similar way. Both women have similar looking sedans, which both women were found in after their murders. And both women were found without their wedding rings. Much is talked about about what the women had in common, but less about what they didn't. Of course, patterns, creating order out of the chaos. But I'm not doing my job if I don't tell you about the things that were different. The women had totally different careers. Mary Lou worked at a bank as a loan officer. Mary Teresa was a nurse practitioner. Mary Lou was almost 10 years older than Mary Teresa at the time of her death. While both bodies were found in the cars, 
the conditions of those bodies were drastically different. One of the cars was totally aflame and had been lit on fire, and the other person had been murdered by gunshot. Mary Teresa was leery of a man that made her uncomfortable at work. Mary Lou didn't seem to have any enemies outside the home. Mary Lou had a stable and happy relationship. Mary Teresa, maybe not so much. Another piece of evidence that they tend to ignore when they talk about this is the actual distance between the crimes. Baytown, Texas and Sugarland, Texas, while both suburbs of Houston are on complete opposite sides of the city, the best way out is always through. And in this case, it's a 48 mile or 45 minute drive with no traffic through Houston to get to those locations. That's the same distance as San Jose to San Francisco, California, or Orlando to Daytona Beach, Florida, or Providence, Rhode Island to Boston. I think you get the idea. So what do you think? Do you think the murders of Mary Lou and Mary Teresa Morris were connected in some way? Do you think, as one of the theories suggested, that a hitman actually botched the whole case and uh, killed the wrong Mary Morris first and then had to kill the right one? Or do you think their deaths were actually a coincidence? What do you think of Mike Morris's four minute phone call to his already dead wife? Do you think that plus that life insurance is enough reason to investigate him even further? And what about Jay? We don't have much to say about him. Could there be something else hidden under the surface? And what about that call to the Houston Chronicle? Do you really think that happened? And if so, why didn't they report on it? Okay, I asked the questions a little bit early because I did a lot of thinking to tell you what I think in this case. Under normal circumstances, I would go with Occam's razor, which says the simplest of competing theories is probably correct. But to be honest with you, none of the theories in this case seem particularly simple to me anyway. If I'm going with my gut, my very first thought is that they're not connected and Mary Lou was murdered by someone random. That's the first murder. And then in the case of the second murder, I think probably Mary Teresa's killer knew who she was or knew about her. And at first glance, that hitman theory seems a little bit far-fetched to me. I mean, I don't know a lot about hitmen, admittedly, but it seems like it would be pretty botched if you killed someone that was 45 minutes away where you were supposed to kill them, unless maybe you were just given a name and a photo and a vague description. And in 2004, the police department had this to say, quote, to date, we have no link or connection between the two cases. As coincidental as it seems, we don't think there was a link. They stated that they hadn't found any evidence that the first murder of the first Mary Morris, Mary Lou, was a mistake. Although I'm not sure how they would know that. Because I'm a healthy skeptic, but I have an open mind, I decided to do a little bit of math or, you know, pseudo probability, because I was just really curious about this fact. Mary is the fifth most common first name in the United States. And Morris is the 56th most common last name in the United States. And in the year 2000, there were about 5,100 people in the United States that had the name Mary Morris. And that actually is a lot less than I thought it was going to be. 
Okay, so statistically in the year 2000, there were about 76 people living in the Houston metro area with the name Mary Morris. That's because in the year 2000, 1.5% of the US population lived in Houston. And I had to figure all of this out statistically and not actually because I could not find a Houston phone book. No matter what I did, could not find a Houston phone book from the year 2000. So we had to do it statistically and statistically it's about 76 people in the Houston metro area named Mary Morris. Homicides. The homicide rate in the Houston metro area was 315. That's not a rate. 315 people were murdered in the Houston area in the year 2000. Any more than zero is too many, but I actually was surprised at how low that number was. One, two, skip a few, couple of math problems later, and there is a, I have to read this, 0. 0.000000196% chance of two Mary Morrises being murdered in the Houston metro area in the year 2000. And that doesn't even consider the closeness of the dates in which they were murdered. I'll be honest, that math, which took a lot of brain power, a lot of thought, and a lot of pieces of paper, makes me think that these murders are connected. I know you can't just do math when you're talking about human behavior and names and all of that, but here's the deal. Even if it was a thousand percent more likely than what I calculated, it would still be a thousand percent away from a one percent chance. That, my friends, makes it seem statistically impossible that these murders are not connected. Mix that together with similar hairstyles, similar looking cars, and similar ways in which the body was found. I think this is probably a case of mistaken identity, unfortunately. And it doesn't discount my initial gut instinct either. Mary Lou was murdered by someone random whom after he murdered her and caught the car on fire, well, he found out he'd done, done the wrong Mary Morrison. And so then he had to correct his mistake and then murdered Mary Teresa Morris using her own gun. Now, how did he know that she had a gun under the seat of her car? Well, I have my theories, but I'll let you decide for yourself. Regardless of the theories of armchair detectives, such as myself, the case remains unsolved. Well, the cases remain unsolved. Marilyn Blaylock, who's Mary Lou Morris's daughter, has given countless interviews as recently as the year 2000. She's determined to find her mother's murderer. Stephanie Lore, Mary Teresa's sister, has said she won't give up until she finds who murdered her sister. The two have actively campaigned together for the solving of their loved one's murders in, I guess, the only bit of silver lining that you can find in a case like this. They've actually developed a very close friendship, one that started on the set of a Montel Williams interview. The two women became so close that Marilyn actually moved with her family to be closer to Stephanie. Stephanie would say, quote, she lost her mom, but gained a family. We lost a sister, but gained her family, end quote. Marilyn would share similar words of gratitude saying, quote, it could have been a tragic situation where nothing good came out of it, but to have someone striving to do the same thing as me, 
We've never had to go through anything by ourselves, end quote. Thanks for hanging out with me. I hope for the sake of both Morris families that these crimes are solved once and for all. I don't really know what the word justice means anymore and I don't know what justice would look like for them, but I hope they get it. How difficult it must be to live in the unknown. I'm on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, and Facebook. Hey, TikTok fans, thanks for being patient with me as I work to get back on track with these videos. For one minute, it's surprising how long that they take. Next week, we head to my hometown, Austin, Texas, where we talk about a crime that has fascinated me since I moved here and fell in love with the Austin landmarks, the Moon Towers. I won't give too much away, but remember, the ingredients for next week's drink the Mexican Martini and Austin Original are in the description box below. I'll see you next week. And remember, there are always alternatives to murder once or twice. <laughs>